Welcome to Just Dads Reading Books, a podcast about judging your kids for what they read. This is produced by Matt Martins and EJ Sanders. Music by Russian Baths. Hi, everybody. What's up? Welcome to Just Dad's Reading Books. I'm here with my very good friend, EJ. And I'm here with my very good friend, Matt. Oh, nice to see you again. Hi, how's it going? It's going good. It's going I, good. Uh, yeah, I had I, a good uh, week. <laughs> I, I think uh, today is, is such a special day, EJ, because yeah. uh, we read Howl's Moving Castle by Diana mm-hmm. Wynne-Jones, and... Prior to this, uh, so Hayao Miyazaki is a, a wonderfully mm-hmm. famous filmmaker, uh, animator of notorious movies like Spirited Away and My, no- My Neighbor Totoro. And my favorite of all of his movies by a long shot is Howl's Moving Castle. I love this movie a lot. And before deciding to read this book, you revealed you've never seen the movie of Howl's mm-hmm. Moving Castle. Yeah. That's correct. I am not a super big studio Ghibli head, mm-hmm. um, as it were. But um, I have watched a few of the movies. The one that I owned growing up on VHS, I only owned one, and it was My Neighbor Totoro, Yeah, which is kind of a somber flick. <laughs> That's the one that gets into everybody. I feel like everybody ends up seeing My Neighbor Totoro above all. It's really? That, or I feel it's like it's spirited The anime away. kids find Princess Mononoke. Like, those are the two to me. Yeah, the anime kids end up reading Roger Ebert's list of 1998 <laughs> movies that they, yeah, and they end up finding Princess Mononoke. But right. no, uh, I think the one is Spirited Away. I think yeah, I mean, I, re- I remember Spirited like. Away coming out in, like, roughly high school for us, or at least the maybe the English translation of it and it was a a academy award winner or nominee Mm -hmm. or whatever and all that so that there was definitely a period of time where that was sort of like the most notable one for its time so i definitely Mm -hmm. agree with that yeah i i I would call all of those the sort of top four and then you get into the fun stuff like like ponyo and and porco rosso and and really weird stuff but you had not uh checked out the movie and we said oh stop right there then because Uh i've never read the book neither of us have ever read the book but I don't know how different the book is from the movie and what a wonderful experiment we get to go on for you to get to read the book first. Yeah. A thing that I think nowadays is not as common, even though this is a, well, this is a very famous book. I mean, you know, yeah, lots of people book. read this before the movie came out, but the movie, I think for at least a certain age group, certainly surpassed uh people's memory you know of what is the what's the famous Howl's Moving Castle it became you know it's the top Google search now for Howl's Moving Castle is the movie so interesting to go back and and not have the movie in your brain right to get to then read the book for the first time which uh after reading turns out boy they're super duper different and at times it was really great to have the movie in my head because I got to like picture characters but it really messed up a lot of my expectations of what I thought this book was about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this book is um, goofier than the movie mm-hmm. by like some margin. And, and there are goofy moments in the movie. Sure. Um, but there's also uh, what I really love about this. And we'll, we'll get more into this as we go. But I think what I really love about How's Moving Castle, the film, is it is a perfect book adaptation in that... <laughs> It does not 
care about the Right. I mean, it cares about its source material. It takes some characters it, and themes and goes, yeah, but we're a movie. I want right. to be a it, movie. It's the best, the best film ad- adaptations I have now decided since seeing the difference between these two uh, forms of media and the way they're communicated. Uh, the best movie adaptations going forward. I'm making a statement now. <laughs> yeah. that going forward, the best ones will basically have nothing to do with the book. Right. Yeah, uh, and it's okay because it's the same story. It's the same soul, right? Mm-hmm. This the story has the same soul, and it and it's just two different interpretations. And I love that. Yeah, yeah, I it's definitely that. a beautiful aspect of these these two things existing. Um, so let's talk first about the book for a bit, and then I do still want to also talk about the movie since you watched it after finishing the book. But um, mm-hmm. you know how how did you feel? about the book i think one thing we said to each other uh while reading it was mm-hmm. i find my i found myself really attached to the beginning and the end of the book mm-hmm. and i sort of did that audiobook thing where i let my brain wander in the middle oh, yeah. and then you told me that you were the opposite that your brain yeah. wandered at the beginning and the end and you were like super tra- so by the end of both of us reading this book the two of us can put together what this book is about maybe yeah it's basically about um basically the same main character in the film sophie mm-hmm. sophie hatter is uh lives in this world now in in the book it sets it up a lot more like they actually live in a fantasy world where things just come true like yeah if if you are the firstborn child you are doomed to take over the family business essentially right. is what happens in the book um but uh sophie is the oldest of three children uh in and she is tasked basically with being a hatter her whole life. Right. Uh, has a run in with the, the witch of the waste ends up getting turned, you know, getting cursed. Uh, and so ensues the rest of the book. Right. Yeah. Uh, she ends up on Howl's moving castle. I will say, um, since I hadn't seen the film and didn't really have an inkling of what Howl's moving castle would uh-huh. look like in film form, a uh, really interesting interpretation by Miyazaki. <laughs> right. Because uh, the book really sets it up as kind of like, yeah, it's run down and dingy, but uh-huh. uh, the way that the the thing is like this like mechanical bulky, nightmare. Steampunky, <laughs> hulking right. mass that's like yeah. an amorphous blob yeah. just towering the countryside. That yeah. Just, yeah, that just is wandering around <laughs> basically aimlessly and it's and it's fueled by calcifer. So all of those like little things are still there, but I definitely imagined it. I remember thinking to myself, Oh, this is probably a really cool like it probably like glides across uh-huh. the land is the way that I thought right. about it. Rather than um, standing and, on like two weird chicken legs and just sort of like yeah, clunking around. Like <laughs> really wobbling around. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a, quite a stark uh, difference. So that I thought that was really cool. Yeah, something I like about how uh, they set up the world in this book to, to get back into the sort of like, you talked about the fantasy elements of, of Sophie sort of just assumes she is doomed to be the hatter for the rest of her life. There's also a whole thing of Sophie talks to the hats that mm-hmm. she makes. And yeah. there's a bit of magic going on even there. Like the, the hats then go out and she sells them and they do good things for people. So she's, she sort of breathes life into objects in some way. Uh, and I, I just love that they set up this world where magic exists all over the place. There's yeah. not like there's, there's a witch, but it's not like a person is either magic or not. It's just that like a witch is like this really nasty person who uses a lot right. of magic. Which is but like, more of an adjective to describe the type. Right. Sophie can do magic. Her two sisters do mm-hmm. a big bout of magic. Yep. They're, they're all, all capable of, of it. And my favorite part too is how just sort of 
understated all this is, the best moment mm-hmm. is the Witch of the Waste comes and puts a spell on Sophie, and Sophie's going to spend the rest of the book uh, looking like an old woman version of herself. Mm-hmm. But the way the witch casts the spell is sort of just like going, Hah! all right, the, that's going to, you can't tell anybody about that. Anyways, I'm going to duck out. It's And that's, that's it. It's like the most understated, like there's no like, <laughs> and there's no like explanation of <laughs> how the magic works. The witch doesn't even explain what happens. She just goes, boom. You're not gonna be able to talk about that, anyways. I'm out, and like that's it. That's all. <laughs> no we get to one will out. believe you. Yeah, she no whispers you. as you're she... trapped in this. Um, and and no the movie does that as well. And I, that's like my favorite thing about this world is how it allows events to just happen, and and mm-hmm. you get to accept that magic is real here, and you just go along for the ride. Like it forces you to go along for the ride. Yeah, and uh, but you know, there's a lot more characters in the book too. Yeah. So Letty is her sister. Martha, another sister of hers, mm-hmm. uh, they have some tangential storylines in the book. They're right. they're in and out of the story uh, for the most part. Letty, I think, has a bigger role than Martha, though Martha right. really comes along. At the well, end. and that gets really confusing because Letty and Martha sort of do this Freaky Friday I, swap places mm-hmm. thing. So then it becomes a little bit tricky to remember which one is doing what essentially uh they basically yeah, all have point. their yeah, roles it might be martha the entire time <laughs> i think about it it's actually martha and letty's body yeah whatever anyways there's well, like a the whole, people like, in the universe are referring to them as the name of the person they look like and then sophie's referring to them by the name of the person she knows them to actually be it gets very confusing uh yeah, and it's so that's not to say the the understated nature of the magic i think is a great aspect of it but it is a reasonable uh mm-hmm. excuse to uh sort of fall apart within the book because lots of body swapping lots of weird little things like that magic just again it just happens and and you're left to sort of deal with it um i like the sisters because mm -hmm. they are the the big linchpin to understanding the primary plot for sophie is you're trapped but the two sisters figured out a way to to game the system if they switch places the youngest sister is the one who gets to go off and have adventures and do whatever she wants. The middle sister right. is going to go get married and settle down. And the oldest mm-hmm. sister has to take over the shop. And the yep. two younger sisters figure don't like have the opposite desires of that those tasks. So they switch places and, and Sophie's finally. left out. And so Sophie is like, yeah. well, I want to do what I want to do. Why don't right. I get to? And right. thus, I mean, almost more like the Hobbit. She just says, I'm going on an adventure. Dang it. Like this, yeah. I'm done. And she just walks out the front door. She walks door. away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is a little bit different than the movie. Again, there's going to be a lot of comparisons between the two. Uh, yeah. But the biggest character change yes. is probably Wizard Hal. Oh, sure. <laughs> Wizard Hal um, in the book is kind of like a charming uh, young man. Uh, mm-hmm. He uh, embodies different personas, yeah. uh, just like he does in the movie. But he embodies all of these personas because he wants to kind of give off an air about him no matter where he's at. Right. Um, you know, he wants to make sure that he can't be traced, essentially. Uh, via his magic door that um, <laughs> that he gets to you know twist and turn in the ways that he wants in order to be where he needs to be right um, but wizard hal in this book is uh, a lot more pathetic um, <laughs> in a lot of yeah. ways you know he's pretty pathetic in the movie too at times but yeah he has specific th- pathetic moments but yeah. in the book it's across the hole you read wizard mm-hmm. hal and you're just like god what a what a little child like just what a what a guy who pretends to have it all figured out and clearly 
is just oh, he's a coward. From he, around, he he's a coward, it. exactly. Yeah, and he admits it. And it's, in fact, it's like the whole thing, right? Wizard House, like, oh, no, I want to be uh, known as a coward. Ha ha. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, uh, you know, he turns the tables later on. Ah, yes, but my cowardice uh, allowed <laughs> me to do all the things that I was needed to do. And it's yeah, like, sure. okay, how? <laughs> you know, he's just very, he's just very goofy. Um, he's he is very fun. He is a little bit of a womanizer in this, right? Which, you know, he he definitely is. Uh, he is a little bit materialistic. Like he, you know, he only likes things at face value. Right. Like you know, he's 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 a lot like that. But, yeah, I think that's something the movie definitely paints him in a better light like there's a whole scene in the movie where it's like he's materialistic his hair changes colors that's the thing Mm -hmm. that's a scene from the book as well where it's like his hair changes colors it's the end of the world he's all but the movie immediately follows that up with there's a bit more of a thing happening in the background in the movie in the world Mm -hmm. there's a war going on and howell is actively participating in trying to stop this war and 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 being a part of fights and stuff and it's like Mm -hmm. it gives way more opportunities for howell to also seem noble and just and good and it's right. like yeah there's the petty vain stuff but like you very clearly see he's a good person whereas the book doesn't let you really in on that as right as often yeah uh the book is is very much about not letting you know what he knows right yeah um, yeah wizard hal is kind of an unreliable narrator and so is sophie in a lot mm-hmm. of ways um and you end up at the end you find out all of this stuff it does kind of wrap a really tight bow on everything right. at the end of this one um but 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 how in this book uh definitely is intentionally sabotaging himself he's self-sabotaging right. so that he can i guess get things done is, right. is the way that he sees it so. yeah the the book likes to end on a pretty strange message mm-hmm. about it, it's an interesting arc for sophie because my my end takeaway from things is sophie was trapped in a sort of structure of life she she wasn't you know she didn't consent to she didn't want to take part in so she you know stubbornly goes off on an adventure and then the lesson she has to learn on the adventure is okay you still need to sort of set plans in motion yeah (laughs) you have to do she she spends a long chunk of the middle of the book just Mm -hmm. like taking action and doing something new and it's like well right you don't know how to do that super well and this is a world of magic where people are constantly lying to you so you have to sort of be a little bit more nuanced than that and that ends that seems to be Sophie's sort of end takeaway by the end of the book is like, okay, I understand a bit more about how to, how to, you know, strike off on my own, but I also recognize that like, that doesn't mean I can't take care of people and sort of do, do, you know, live with my experience of being the oldest child and, 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 you know, helping people and having a plan in place. I think the coolest, she's the coolest translation from book to movie Mm -hmm. as well. Um, because in the movie, they don't really even say that she has a power, but she is yeah. using it the entire movie, which I thought was really cool because I right. knew to look for it, right? Me being somebody who read the book first, yeah. knew that she could do the things that she could do, which is speak, basically speak things alive, right? right. She can talk to something and like will it into existence, yeah. like yeah. will will a soul into it, which is really cool. And when you start to watch the movie from that perspective, right. it's really, really, really cool. Well, and like, the inverse of that really is cool. so much trickier to navigate mm-hmm. because I right. didn't really have that note. Like, I don't know. The end of the movie is a very big, like, nonsense, climactic, just, like, mm-hmm. magical things start happening. Oh, You're just yeah. sort of, like, riding the high of brilliant <laughs> colors and love and yes. hearts and everything's going well. Yeah. And... 
and I hadn't watched the movie in a long time when I started the book, so I I didn't have any recollection of Sophie having magical powers. And so then, many of the times in the book, it's it's addressing that Sophie has magical powers. I was like overlooking them. Like things would yeah. happen and I would be like, what is going on? Like, what are yeah. we even talking about? And and I had to like read synopsises to to like reframe my brain back into the book and be like, oh wait, yeah, yeah, yeah. She she's doing things she never does in the movie, and I'm allowing myself to think too much about movie Sophie and not enough about book Sophie. And it yeah, it, it really traps you. And now I I am excited. To, if I, I had started watching the movie uh, with my daughter in very tiny little mm-hmm. increments because she's two and a half and <laughs> we don't we don't get through more right. than 10 minutes of anything. Uh, but I, in watching those small increments, I was doing it while I was reading the book. And I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I had finished the whole book and then gone back and watched the movie because I do think that's the best way to sort of engage with both of these things. And especially, again, similar to EJ's situation, if you've never checked out either I definitely think you should read the book before you check out the movie because like EJ said, you get sort of all these profound experiences in because the movie is just as understated as a lot of things in the book, even more understated because we're doing it in a quick 90 minutes or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Like we we really burn through some plot points, but you get to sort of imagine the backstory, you know, kind of is is uh, symbolically underneath the events of the movie. You know, it's like it's almost like uh, it it. It wants you to read this book. Yeah. The movie wants you to read the book. That's true. Um, whereas, uh, you know, because once you read the book, I think you end up with just such a a broader perspective of what the world is. Yeah. That that uh, Diana Wynn Jones was trying to um, portray. Yeah. There, are, just real quick, we're I want to run through some characters. Yeah, yeah. Um, that are in the book and are conflated. So Michael Fisher is Markle in the movie. Uh, Michael Fisher is basically the apprentice to Hal, uh, yep. basically the same character. Witch of the Waste is also conflated with Lily Angorian, um, who is the fire demon. They just take right. Lily out of the movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Witch of the Waste also, uh, by the way, uh, reading the book first, I was like, yeah, the Witch of the Waste sucks. And then yeah. watching the movie and seeing her transform into this like really semi-lovable yeah. character. Oh, I, I, I yeah, the, the way the movie chooses to just sort of combine Miss mm-hmm. Angorian and the Witch of the Waste is like the coolest thing ever. And then the way they twist the idea of mm-hmm. in the book, Miss Angorian is putting on some kind of front, but then right. they turn Miss Angorian into this aspect of the Witch of the Waste that is not yeah. putting on a front. That is just... She's just this morphed, twisted version of the Wist. It's it's the yeah. best interpretation of any of the characters, and, and not even interpretation. Absolutely. It's the best change of yes. any of the characters, change. and it's yeah, such I a would... funny. It's such a funny incident. Yeah, and then there's one more big one, which is Miss P- Mrs. Pinstemon, uh, t- and Wizard Solomon. Turn out they they just conflate them, like, right? Which I think is also brilliant. I didn't know why we needed both of those characters and why <laughs> yeah. Stimmon couldn't just be both, right? Right. I, and it it's makes more of the weird body swapping nonsense that they yeah. just have to get wrapped up in. And it's it's even more confusing than the Letty Martha right. swap. Right. So so those are basically all the characters. And then there's yeah. Calcifer. And oh Calcifer's basically the same across both. And I think yeah. that's such a good touchstone using Calcifer, who is really in the end kind of the main character the heart of the story story, uh literally and figuratively uh my my favorite thing go the biggest change is in the story calcifer is at the very least described as genuinely terrifying he's a demon 
Uh, yeah. And, and when you look at him, it's a, it is a sight. It's a scary sight to behold. Right. And the movie plays with that in the best way, which is <laughs> well, that Kelsey is this adorable <laughs> illustration that goes, and everybody goes, ooh, yeah. you're very mighty, so Kelsifer. scary, Kelsifer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, that's a great interview. And it's Billy Crystal. I mean, come it on, whatever. It's the best. I used to own a t-shirt with Calcifer on it. Calcifer is one of my favorite characters in fiction. Uh, I, I oh. love him so much. And he, I, I had a shirt with him on it and I wore it once and then it got put in the wash with like a, oh, like a pen yeah. and it got destroyed. And uh, I immediately just bought another version of the shirt because I yeah. had to have that shirt. And then That's I wore cool. it like a couple times and I don't know what happened to it. I lost it. So I think now that I've done the book, I need to go get a new like Calcifer shirt or a Calcifer hat or something. I need I need more Calcifer back in my life. Yeah, Calcifer is really cool. I think that overall Sophie and Calcifer's relationship mm -hmm. is really the thing i think that's the biggest threat right between yes. both the movie and book and in the right. book calcifer has like it feels way more demanding right mm -hmm. feels way more powerful which is yeah. why the the book or the movie interpretation of calcifer is so kind of funny yeah, right? yeah whenever you read the book first you're like man calcifer is going to be like i i literally was sitting there watching the movie and i saw you know first time you see the castle moving across the waist right and here we and go she gets picked up she gets picked up and i'm like oh calcifer's in there it's, it's like my first thought right is uh, i'm so excited to see calcifer and to see that he was just a little flame almost buried in ash yeah is the funny like i I, you know, my daughter sitting next to me, we're kind of enjoying the movie. Like she's, she's really enjoying it. She's into it at this point. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I see the little flame and I just burst out laughing. That's like so I was just good. like, that's so funny. Yeah. Like, uh, I, so I just had such an incredible, and yeah, I can't, I can't speak to this enough where if you haven't seen the movie, definitely read the book first yeah. or slash listen to the book. Cause right. you're, you're just going to have so much more fun with the movie. Like, yeah. It is like such a great experience for me, like getting to have that. Like, and I'm sure a lot of people who grew up with this book, who got to see the movie also had that like saying, yeah, yeah. like, this is the soul of a story that is told differently. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and that's what makes the movie so good. But the book on its own is also just so good. The two constantly enhance each other. I mean, like yes. you could, you, you could just read the book and watch the movie back and forth like a dozen times and keep yeah. getting new things out of the experience because there's yeah. again because there's so many things understated in each of them you catch little nuggets every time you're oh, oh i didn't even think about them referencing that moment in the book there when we get into this room I, i'm sure there's yeah. stuff even just in the art design where it's just the like scarecrow. A thing on we the haven't wall. even talked about yeah, the we haven't talked about the scarecrow at all and that's like another <laughs> massive like change between the two change. because yeah. in the in the book there's this scarecrow that's sort of uh, well first off Sophie speaks life into she basically makes this scarecrow come to life um, and it follows her like the whole book and she's terrified of it for like most of the book whereas in the movie scarecrow becomes a good friend within you know maybe t 15 minutes scarecrows hanging out and and chill with everybody uh, which I, I was a, a surprising thing every mm -hmm. time it came up for me in the book because I know the scarecrow to just be this beloved turnip head thing and every yeah. time we get to a chapter where Sophie sees the, you know, she hears the stick she's bouncing. Terrified. It's like a horror movie. And she's, yeah, she's running away. Terrified. I'm like, what? What's going on? What's wrong with Turniphead? Turniphead's great. What's going on? And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I just think, I think reading the book first is kind of critical 
but then going back and forth so. is great. But but only experiencing the movie first. Well, I mean, first off, the movie's great. So whatever, it's, it, well, it you is did great. That for, but it just for makes years, the book so. trickier. Um, you really have to open your mind. You you will have to reset your brain before you read the book because there's just so many little things that'll trip you up along the way. But this is like like you said though, before you even read the book, this was still one of your favorite like, stories. This was your yeah. favorite Miyazaki film. You said right. to me, yeah. And so it, how much did it enhance? this on your list of like all time favorite movies. Yeah. Like just I, reading the book. I, I don't know yet. I, I think, um, I think it definitely enhanced the notion we were sort of talking about earlier of just like how beautiful of an adaptation is it? Like it, it's definitely enhanced in that regard of like, mm-hmm. I thought this was a cool movie and there was a part of me that going into starting the book was like, you know, how much of a genius is Hayao Miyazaki really? He's just, he's just adapting a few books. Castle in the Sky is another just Diana Wynne Jones uh, book, Castle in the Air, uh, set in the same universe, actually, which the movies don't really feel necessarily the same universe, although I'm sure there's little small links. But in the end, yeah, seeing how stark the contrast actually is lets you put way more credit back into the filmmaker's camp because it's just like wow y'all did some like actual magic with something that was already great you made it you made something else just as great the dog in the book oh Ah! there's a whole oh my yeah hey by the way this is why you should read the book the dog in the book and the (laughs) scarecrow those are two characters in both where you're just like the dog in the book is like this guy who is just like trying to become a human. Yeah. I cannot stress keeps, to you he enough. He keeps like having to go like how. <gasps> yeah. It's and like just like turn like, into a man for a second. Hey, don't talk to hell. So <laughs> it's literally, it's literally a horror film. Like for both of yeah. them, right? Like there's like the, there's like the scarecrow is like the slasher flick. And the other one is just like a traditional horror, like where yeah. it's just like, I'm, I'm this ugly <laughs> Lovecraftian thing. Yeah. thing that just like comes to life for a second. And, and, then and like both absorbs. of them in the movie is just like two of the more adorable. Like yeah. I literally saw, it's so hilarious now in retrospect. I went to Barnes and Noble the other day and they had like a mm-hmm. Miyazaki stand with like a bunch of Miyazaki collectibles. There's like a beautiful My Neighbor Totoro mug that I really want to get. They had a little plushie of that dog from the movie, which is like, oh, how cute. But now my frame of reference is like, do I want that weird thing around my house? <laughs> that character is not necessarily real, something I want like in my kid's stuffed animal closet. <laughs> real quick, I actually, the first thing I Googled was I wanted a Witch of the Waste figurine from the movie. <laughs> I really did. She's so adorable. Like yeah. She just is like, oh, look at the pretty flame. <laughs> like, I, I love that. I love how, I, I just love... I love everything about this universe. Yeah. I want to read more Diana Wynn Jones. We didn't even get to speak much about her yet. Yeah. Um, she's great. She just seems like a great person. I, I love this world, which is why I definitely want to check out the other books. There's there's like a direct sequel to Howl's Moving Castle, mm-hmm. and then there's Castle in the Air, which is like uh, set in the same universe mm-hmm. book. I definitely want to check both those out. What I really wonder is how much stuff in the sequel to Howl's Moving Castle... I wonder if any of that is sort of sprinkled into the movie. Like, how much did they sort of pull from that? Or did they really take the initial book and then walk away? It's really hard to say. I mean, we'll have to read them. I mean, obviously, we're going to read them at some point. point. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, I I really don't know. Um, Again, 
I just think the imagination between both of them, just to yeah, come up absolutely. with this universe in the universe in the first place uh, that Diana did, uh, is just like it's so cool. It's so pleasant. Um, it really goes. I think too with our kind of road to Pratchett kind of absolutely. Stuff. It's fun yeah. fantasy, right. That allows itself to just hang out in the fun. And it, what's great about it is it leans less. You know, our thing with the road to Pratchett is Pratchett leans on a lot of tropes and plays mm-hmm. with them. And this is and Howl's Moving tropes. Castle is like let's eschew all tropes. Let's do all our tropes. own thing yep. in so many different ways. There's a few love story tropes or whatever. There's like a couple things in there, but for the most part, it's just like this is my magical world, and I'm not going to explain any of it to you. I'm just going to yeah. do what I want to do. Magic works how I decided it works, and I won't explain an inch of it. The best fantasy fiction always, always, always just does what it wants without explaining it to you. It was yeah. our problem with Aragon, right? Our biggest problem with Aragon was that it just does too much explaining right. of what it's trying to do, right? Uh, just do it. Just do the thing, right? right. Uh, and I go back to it all the time. It, It's your world. It's your fiction. Do what you want to do with it because I hate it when people, I, I've said this to you before, I hate it when people are like, oh, well, that's not realistic. If you don't give them a reason, like if you're explaining the way you're doing things, all you're doing is letting, like, pedantics uh just like be like ah what a well actually you know if you you know and then like yeah. absolutely give you stupid stupid points it's your you, world just you know creative. what i think is i think there's a lot of fantasy that especially nowadays is written somewhat from the perspective of a a post tabletop role playing game world and mm-hmm. a lot of fantasy authors would almost true, be yeah. better served just writing a role-playing game book. They, they want to design a magic system and they want to explain yeah. it to you. It's like, okay, that's a role-playing game book. <laughs> yeah. But like in Howl's Moving Castle, the magic all serves a purpose in the story. The world right. exists to serve the story <sighs> and the magic is not some system that the writer really needs to explain to you because they came up yeah. with a really clever way for magic to work. Yeah. She could care less how you understand magic to work. It right. just works because the story needs it to do this, this, and this. Yeah, and Sophie, and like I said, Sophie, the way that Sophie's magic works is yep. just so cool for the the entire story in this book. The way that yeah. she just like has to empower herself basically yes. it comes from like self-empowerment that she had <laughs> that, that her magic works right but but again that's something you intuit yeah. it's not even like it's not explained that way it's right. just that sophie sits there at times and she's like oh, i really need this thing yeah, to come yeah. to life now <laughs> please come to life and you're just like oh boy is it gonna come to life for yeah. her like you're like you don't know what ch- she's channeling it doesn't right. matter what she's channeling it's it's like that it's her. It it's, it's a manifestation of her willpower to do. Yeah. It. I mean, the, yes. at the end of this book is like ridiculous in how clean everything is, right? But it's yeah. like it's a beautiful, fun children's fantasy book, and the reason things end cleanly is because the the hero gets her way. Like she solves all the problems. She solves her heart in conflict with itself problems. Yeah. So we get to wrap up the stuff at like to to the effect where the biggest solution to the puzzle of what she's going to do to help save Calcifer is essentially she just does it. She says, I'm going to help yep. Calcifer and Calcifer is helped. Yay. <laughs> and it's like, you're fine with that being how simple it is. It doesn't need to be more complicated than that. Why should, why should it have to be right? <laughs> but yeah, I think, uh, I don't know. I think this is my, this is definitely my favorite fantasy book we've read. Yeah. Um, and it might be my favorite book we've read for wow. this podcast. You you keep one up, but we keep having that happen. Where I know. We read something I, I great, know. and then the next thing one up. Well, it. 
I, sometimes I'll think about it. Like the last Quintista, I remember texting you like yeah. the beginning of that book and yeah, being yeah. like, oh, this might be the best book we've read. Like, right. I remember having that specific thought and going, oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is, that book's the best opening of anything we've read. Yeah. I don't oh, know if it carries through to the that, end, basically. It, but the, it, the yeah, first really few chapters, you're just like, are we oh, doing this? Yeah. You're like, you're, <laughs> your hands are like gripping your seat. Like, yeah. good Lord. Like, what is going to happen? Um, but then, yeah, it does kind of taper off. It is a very strong start. But outside of that, you know, I'm looking at the rest of our list. And uh, obviously, um, to, just a little peek behind the curtain here, we... Yeah, we're a month and a half ahead. Yeah, yeah. So the episode <laughs> is coming out this. tomorrow, yeah. which is root magic. So if you want to know, if you do the math real quick for the, yourself, yeah, and you can figure you that can out, calculate it. Yeah, it's February twenty third is when the, that episode's <laughs> coming out. So this won't come out until uh, April. So wow. there you go. Uh, this but, show we- is weird. <laughs> this show's weird but, for you and me. But root magic, uh, you know, as we said on that episode uh, that you are probably going to be listening to, um, you know it. It's something, it's unlike anything we've ever yeah. read. And I think right. that's the best stuff, right? The best stuff that we've read on this show so far is unlike anything yep. that we've seen. And right. Root Magic captures that. And I think Howl's Moving Castle, even though it's like, it's insane to think that this book is nearly 40 years old because it, oh, wow. it feels timeless. Yeah. Yeah. It's 30 yeah, I hadn't even checked old. the math on that. Yeah. I didn't know. <laughs> I wasn't sure when this book was written because, yeah, it absolutely feels timeless, especially, yeah. especially once you then have the movie in your head. But it's like, even the, the manner of speaking in it feels like, honestly, the, the, maybe this is a testament to Taylor Despero. You know how we talked about mm-hmm. Taylor Despero feels like it was written in the sixties, despite being written in like the nineties or whatever. Yeah, uh, yeah. This book feels the same way, which is to say it feels like a nineties person's interpretation of the sixties writing or something. Bit, yeah. I don't know how else to explain it, but that was the vibe I got. Like it felt very modern to me while still yeah. also being like at times sort of eloquent and breathy. Yeah. Yeah, there are definitely a lot of characters who have a uh, who carry themselves with like an air about them. Yeah, and, and I think that's where that writing comes across. And I think that happens in a lot of fantasy fiction. And and what makes Pratchett so good, right? We go yes. back to that where right. where it, he's talking to you like it is nineteen ninety nine. You yeah. know, like yeah, yeah. Like, he's like you've like been like reading fantasy for thirty years. Well, how about a little bit of this for you? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, uh, I think my my favorite summation of the the writing style is the the note will go out on this week. Uh, so thank you for joining us. Uh, we, we love you all. Keep reading books and everything. And uh, you know, I think we ought to live happily ever after. I do too, man. <laughs> you and me, EJ. I think I'm saying that to you. I'm, I think we ought I've to live happily saying, ever after. Been saying it. <laughs>